So if you have your Bibles, please turn in them to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. We're in verse 12. And Wendy Turney, good morning, Wendy. It will come up, on up and read our passage for today. Thanks, Mark. Um, first, I'd like to start this morning by wishing my dear friend, Jean Humphrey, a happy birthday. Is that okay? <laughs> anyway, I love you, Jean. Um, would you turn with me and your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17? And would you stand for the reading of God's word? I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning. So good to be together to celebrate the birth of our Lord, as Mark just said, while Caesar was off making big plans for his empire. Nobody possibly would have noticed the birth of this little child. And yet, uh, today, this child is celebrated far more than Caesar ever was. And it's such a beautiful testimony to his, his goodness, his grace, his power. And all December, we've been asking the question, why did he come? Why, in the explicit words of Scripture, when, when Scripture writers tell us this is why, what do they actually say? And so we've looked at... Uh, this will be our third reason why Jesus came today, our third and last for the month. Um, I just want to remind you, two weeks ago we looked at 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This little child looks innocent, but he came as a destroyer. And that's a good thing, because the things he came to destroy were bad things. So he came as a destroyer. Last week we looked at this, Galatians 4. God sent his Son to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as God's children. God sent his Son, that we might become sons and daughters of the great King. And then, this morning, we look at this um, maybe simplest and perhaps most famous of all. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. A very simple but very profound truth. And um, my hope this morning is that we can just kind of take in this really simple truth together. Just kind of soak it in for the next 30 minutes or so. And let this morning be an exhale. To go, ah, Jesus came to save sinners. And guess what? That's me. Uh, And it's it's good news that Jesus came for, for people like me. He came to save his name, Jesus means the Lord saves, or as I like to say, Yahweh to the rescue. That's what his name means. 
And so today, I, I just want to just kind of soak in this basic truth. We're sinners. That's who we are. Uh, we're also saints, um, but we're sinners. And that's good news because Jesus came for people just like us. So whatever busyness you find yourself and my prayer is the next 30 minutes would just be a nice exhale, taking in this simple, basic truth, right? And the way I want to do this this morning is um, Paul makes this comment here in 1 Timothy. There's a place where Jesus himself makes a similar comment, and I want to go there. Um, Jesus says in Mark 2.17, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Paul says, right, Christ came to save sinners. Jesus himself says, I came for sinners. So I want to look at both of these passages and just look at the context of each of the statements and compare and contrast them this morning and find the good news in both of them, all right? So I actually want to take you now, go to Mark chapter 2, all right, in your Bibles. I want to see the context in which Jesus made this statement about coming for sinners. So Mark 2, you can flip in your... Bibles, your phones, whatever. Page 1,000 in my Bible if you need a reference. Page 1,000. Mark 2, verse 13. This is the context of Jesus' statement that he came for sinners. Uh, This is the calling of Levi, or as we know him better, Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. Let me read verse 13 to verse 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, we call him Matthew now, uh, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, so that's the context of Jesus' statement about coming for sinners, the calling of, I'll call him Matthew. And you learn in this passage that uh, Matthew was a tax collector. So I want to talk about Matthew for a couple minutes. Um, uh, Tax collectors in that day uh, were labeled as notorious sinners. I was was doing some research online about tax collectors this day. In the first article I pulled up, the first line was this. The tax collector has never been a popular man. Um, (laughs) Which is an understatement. Um, But tax collectors in the first century, especially in Israel, were particularly unpopular, all right? So the fact that Matthew was a tax collector means a couple things. One, he was a traitor to his country. So Matthew is a Jew who works for the Romans. And of course, Roman taxation represents for the Jew everything that is wrong in the world. It reminds them daily or or yearly or whenever they have to collect taxes, the fact that they are under foreign occupation. And so Matthew is a traitor to his own people. He's in bed with the Romans. He collects taxes for the Romans. So he is a traitor. Um, He is a very dishonest person. The way it worked for Jewish tax collectors is you basically, Rome requires you to, you know, gather a certain amount of taxes and whatever else you can get off the top is yours. 
So he was dishonest. He would cheat people to get more money. He was obviously greedy. I'm sure he was a a wealthy guy. And I guarantee you, Matthew had a fairly shady, broken, checkered past. And and why I think that is because um, no good Jewish boy goes into tax collecting in the first century. Okay, that just doesn't happen. Like, there's not a tax collecting major in Jewish college of the day, right? Um, a, a, a good Jewish kid from a good Jewish family who's followed his good Jewish parents does not go into the occupation of tax collecting. You go into that occupation because your family of origin is most likely broken or because at some point you burned bridges with your parents and you've burned a bunch of bridges relationally. You've had things happen to you that were really challenging. You've probably done some things that were pretty stupid. And so that's the kind of person that ends up as a tax collector, as a Jewish tax collector. Other Jews would not have associated with Matthew, not respectable Jews. He is a sinner, and you hear that word show up in this passage. He's an outsider. He's someone who is spiritually sick and immoral and worldly. And what I love in this passage is Jesus so clearly chooses him, doesn't he? It's not like Matthew's asking questions about the faith. Jesus comes up to him and is like, I'm choosing you, Matthew, the tax collector. You come and you follow me. And Matthew is like, okay, I will. And I think Jesus, among other things, is making a statement in choosing Matthew. He's, he, of course, he loves Matthew, but Matthew is going to be an example for others from Jesus to say, these are the kinds of people that I've come for. This person, Matthew, he says he communicates something about who I am and what I want to do and and what I've come to do in this world. And so I'm giving him, he is my exhibit A, that I have come for sinners. It's so clear. And what's great is, you know, Matthew is not like an isolated example. I mean, Jesus does this regularly in his ministry, right? Right? calling people sinners, notorious sinners like Matthew into into his community. Luke's gospel has the calling of Zacchaeus, who is not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And Jesus is walking by, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And everyone's aghast, right? Jesus is going to eat with Zacchaeus? Or John tells the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Okay, she's a Samaritan. That alone is bad enough. Um, but she, is, she has a broken past. She has had five failed marriages. And Jesus invites her into this relationship. And she ends up telling her whole town. And the whole town comes out and sees Jesus. Or you've got this sinful woman who um, is, is watching and crying on Jesus' feet. And we don't even know what her past is. But the Pharisees, when she's doing this to Jesus, they're like, if he knew who this girl was, he would not be letting her touch him. And so Jesus is gathering this kind of people. And so I was, this is a, you know, some of you will recognize this. This is Jesus and his entourage of folks. But throughout his ministry, he's gathering people to himself, some of whom are these broken, messy, dysfunctional, worldly, immoral people. Right? And that, that communicates something about who Jesus is. I came for sinners. That's why I came. And so he calls Matthew, and I love how the story ends. Then he goes to Matthew's house, and Matthew has a meal, a party, and he invites the only friends he has, which are a bunch of broken, messy people just like him. All these other tax collectors and sinners, 
right? And the religious leadership, is, is they, they're horrified by this. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? And Jesus hears of this, and he says, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I'm a doctor. Doctors spend their time with sick people. Why would I spend my time with a bunch of healthy people, right? They didn't have preventative care back then, apparently. Um, <laughs> if you're a doctor, you spend time with sick people. That's the reason you're around. And Jesus is like, I'm a spiritual doctor. I've come for the spiritual sick. That's why I spend my time with these people. All right, so that's the first context. Exhibit A, Matthew, the tax collector. Let's jump back to our passage. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Page 111 and 85. I don't hear many pages turning. Are you guys not reading your Bible? You're just such quiet turners. Or you're all using your phones. Um, You should bring your Bibles to church. Can I say that? You should have a text in front of you every Sunday, whether it's on a screen, whether it's on a piece of paper. You want to be in the Word. You want to see, why is Dave saying this? Do I believe what he's saying? Can I trust what he's saying? Because don't take my word for it. So I want to invite you every Sunday to have a text in front of you. That's a very good thing. This is the word of God that we get, to, we get to take and not to be taken for granted, all right? You've been shamed. You've been guilted. Okay, here we go. You're sinners. Good news. All right. So let's look at this context. Similar comment. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of course, in this context, Paul is writing. And when he says sinners, he's thinking of himself. He says, of whom I am the worst. And if you just take Matthew before Jesus called him, and you take Paul before Jesus called him, you could not have a more opposite set of folks. I mean, these two guys were so different in every single way. Paul, turns out, was not a tax collector. Paul was a member of the religious elite of his day. He was a Pharisee, right? I mean, he, he, was, he was among the most respected religious authorities in his day. Let me read to you Paul's own description of himself before Jesus um, in Philippians 3. Some of you will recognize this. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. If anyone wants to try to boast about the achievements and their pedigree, I can play that game with the best of them. Here's how he describes himself. I was circumcised on the eighth day, like a good Jewish boy, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a great historic tribe, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. We hear the word Pharisee these days. We think that's bad. Back then you heard Pharisee like, that's like an elder. That's like a, a church leader. That's like a pastor. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Okay? If you'd met Paul in that day, you'd have met a guy who grew up in a great Jewish family with a great Jewish heritage. Okay? The Torah would have been a part of his upbringing. He would have, he would have learned it from his folks and studied it and, and He would have been educated in the Torah. He would have been zealous for his faith. He would have been a passionate man, a committed man, a disciplined man. He was faultless. He followed God's at least external commandments to a T. He was respected. He was successful. He was moral. He was headed for big things in the religious community of his day. Okay, so opposite Matthew. Paul was, he was not an outsider. He was like the insider, he, was, he did not have a messy life. His life was so put together 
And some of us in this room have lives that look put together. I promise you, Paul's life looked as put together as yours does before Jesus, probably more so. And he was passionate to stamp out this heretical sect of people that were believing this Jesus guy, right? So that's who he was. I mean, you would have seen him. He would have stepped in this room. He would have fit in with the best of us. And then he's on the road, right, to Damascus to arrest some more of these heretics. And he has an encounter with the living Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. And Jesus appears to him in this blinding light from heaven, knocks him down to the ground, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, that's what his name was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul is blind, and he's, who, who are you? He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, I'll tell you what to do next. And this respectable, put-together man, this religious elite, realizes in a moment that all of that respectability and religion and righteousness was taking his life 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And he realizes that was taking him in the opposite direction, putting him in conflict with the Lord of the universe. Meaning he wasn't just kind of off, he was way off. He, and it just, in a minute, it all came crashing down. And, and he realized, oh my gosh, this whole life I've been living somehow has gone awry in some way. Now, what was off? What was off about his life? I, I was thinking about that, and there's a lot of answers. But if we look at our passage here, um, verse 13 gives us a clue of what was so off. Let me read it to you. It says, even though I was once a blasphemer, where that, that's off, right? And a persecutor. Uh, and a violent man, that, that, that phrase violent man struck me. Um, so in the original Greek that this was written in, violent man is translating the word hubristes, where we get our English word hubris, okay? And that word means one who insults in an arrogant manner. And so I think at the core of what was off in Paul, there was this hubris, there was this pride. There was this self-righteousness. So underneath a life that looked so impressive, right? This, this life he had constructed, underneath it was pride. What I would call self-righteousness. A life he had constructed to try to validate the self and to try to improve the self and promote the self and to try to justify the self before God and before others. It was a life of self-righteousness. Matthew, a life of unrighteousness. Paul, a life of self-righteousness. And what's remarkable to me is Paul looks back on that life, right, in this passage that looked so respectable on the outside. When, when he compares it to other people's lives, he goes, you know what, looking back, I was the worst of sinners, the word he uses actually literally is, I was the chief, I was the, the head, I was the first. If there's a long line of sinners, I was right there at the front of the line. That that life of prideful self-righteousness was actually the worst. Because it moved me towards judgmentalism, ultimately towards violence, towards God's own people. That pride was dressed up in some really nice clothes. But it was ugly and it was opposed to the life of of Jesus. And Jesus had to break Paul 
of that pride and self-righteousness. He did it in epic fashion, right? I mean, literally knocks him down on the ground, blinds him like, Paul, you're just going to be, I'm going to bring you low, literally. And I'm going to show you how little you see things. You're just going to be blind for a couple days. Because you think you you see things well, but um, you don't see things so well. And I think it had to be that dramatic because that's the only way that Jesus could introduce Paul something to something that he had never fully understood his whole life, and that something was grace. And all his pride and religious self-righteousness, he did not understand grace. And the, really, the, the theme of this passage is Paul communicating the grace that he's received from Jesus. Look at verse 14. I love how he describes it. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It's like Jesus just took a big bucket and just poured his grace on me. And I needed that much grace because I didn't see myself clearly. He received that grace and it changed him. It humbled him. It transformed his life. And Jesus did it for Paul. But I think just as with Matthew, Jesus chose Paul specifically because he wanted to use Paul as an example. Just as with Matthew, this is a completely different example. And that's what, look what Paul says in verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Jesus is using Paul, the worst Pharisee, to bring him to this place of becoming the greatest missionary of Jesus to show the example of these are the kinds of people I've come to save. This is the kind of transformation that I can bring in a person's life. This guy right here is an example, I love this phrase, of my unlimited patience. You just think how patient Jesus was with Paul for years while Paul was persecuting Jesus' people. But I want to display my patience. And so I'm using Paul as an example. So I want to give you this. um, No, that's not the image I wanted. Okay, I'll take you this image again. So we have to add to this entourage today. We have exhibit A, the Matthews of the world. The unrighteous, the immoral, the shady, the worldly, the broken, the messy as a part of Jesus' community. But we also have to add into this community somebody like Paul, the self-righteous, the religious, the respectable, who have been broken of that pride, who have come to see the grace of Jesus and are beginning to live inside of that grace, rather on that treadmill of trying so hard to justify their lives. They all belong in Jesus' community. Jesus says, I came into the world to save sinners. I don't really care what kind of sinners they are. Sinners come in all different shapes and sizes. And I've come for all of them. Because I am the Lord saves. Yahweh to the rescue. Amen? Amen. So that is good news this morning. And I want us to kind of receive that and and put ourselves in this story. Um, This is the good news of Christmas that, that we are focusing on this, this Christmas, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And some of us, I would imagine as I tell those two stories, some of us relate more to Matthew. 
okay? Maybe we have a past prior to faith, or maybe we're still in that life uh, that feels really broken and messy and worldly and immoral and dysfunctional. All of us have parts of ourselves that feel like Matthew, whatever our history is, right? Meaning all of us have parts of our lives, areas in our lives where at some point we, we kind of just decided to say no to God in his way. Like, I'm just saying no to God's way, and I'm choosing my way in this area of my life. And then over time, we kind of got stuck in my way, and we got enslaved to my way, and realized, I, I don't know how to get out of my way. All of us have that in some area of our lives, and now there's this broken part of me that's, that's sick. It's, it's broken. It's messy. I can't fix it. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and, there's, and it causes guilt. It causes shame. It's a dark place that I'd rather, you know, I'd rather cover and hide. And for some of us, that stuff is, is in uh, the area of our sexuality, right? It's, it's, a, it's a sexual area of our lives that feels dark and messy and dysfunctional and broken. For some of us, it's a, maybe it's a financial area of our lives that feels just really broken and messy. For some of us, it's relational in nature. It's just these relationships that have just been broken over, over so, many t- so many years and so many different relationships. Some of us, it has to do with, with our bodies and how we think about our bodies. For some of us, it has to do with what we take in to our bodies, like with food or drink or, or substances. Right? All sorts of areas in our lives. Some of us, it's what comes out of our mouths, <laughs> the kinds of things we'll say to people. It's broken. It's, it's that Matthew unrighteous part of us. And the good news of Christmas, and I would just want you to hear it. Um, if you relate to any of that, Jesus came for you. Jesus came to save sinners. And so the invitation is this. Uh, Jesus came for those places in you. I mean, that's why he came. And the invitation is, so let him meet you in those places. I mean, those are the very places that he's come for. So what would it look like this Christmas to allow him to meet you specifically in those places? Not in spite of those places, but in and through those places. That's why he came. Yahweh to the rescue. Don't let those places be walls in your relationship with Jesus. See, that's the very opposite. Those should be the doorways that he walks through and meets you in a much more intimate and deep and real way than he would if you didn't have those. That's why he came. He knows. So what does it look like to let him in rather than to keep him out of those places? That's, he's like, I'm here for that. Some of us, in the description of these two people, probably relate more to Paul. That we realize that there is that unrighteousness. I mean, we probably relate to both. That's the sad news, right? I, I see parts of, of, of Matthew in me. I see parts of Paul in me. But there's that part of us that's, that's maybe that self-righteous, that respectable, religious, put-together part of me. Um, where outwardly it looks good, but, but if I kind of go a couple levels deeper, I realize that what's, what's underneath all of that, there is a level of pride. There is a level of, of self-righteousness where I'm trying to justify and, and, and draw attention to myself. And that, that's what keeps me going to avoid the needy places. 
And I'll just say for myself, this, this last year or so, I have come in very fresh ways to, um, I've come in contact with my own pride. I'll say it that way. And I, I would never have called it by that name in years past. Pride is an ugly word to me. I don't, I don't connect with the word, but the essence of what it is, this last year, I have seen more than ever, wow, like I live with a lot more pride than I thought it was. And it's, it's uglier than I thought it was. And it's not helpful for me in ways that I had never realized before. Let me give you just a couple personal examples so you can tell me if I'm crazy. Here's how I've seen pride coming out. Again, I would never have called this pride until this year. Uh, I experience a defensiveness when receiving constructive criticism, good, grace-filled, constructive criticism. There's this defensive thing that comes. Now, I'm a people pleaser, so I can mask that pretty well, but that's what's happening inside. Um, I experience a, a jealousy when I see people around me succeed like my friends, like when my friends do great in work, I experience not celebration for them. I experience, a, I, I wake up the next day with a little more like angst and gumption and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make something in my life. Like that's kind of ugly. It's just pride. Um, I do a lot of the right things uh, for the wrong reasons. Um, I do the right thing as a way to preserve the self. Uh, I'll say the right thing. I'll reach out to the right person. I'll try to preach the right sermon. But if I get inside, why am I doing this? So often is because I, I want to look fine. I, I want approval. I want this personal. It's actually not about them. It's about me. Uh, and the other one is I avoid things all the time out of pride, meaning I'll just avoid things that feel slightly out of control to me because I don't want to look like I'm out of control. And so I'll just avoid a lot of things and protect myself, but it's just pride. And what I'm seeing in that is what's missing, what's missing in that is love. It's like genuinely loving people for, for love's sake. And what's also missing is grace. Like God's like, Dave... I love you. You don't have to have this all. Just receive my grace. Um, it's uglier than I thought. And it's heavier than I thought. Pride is such a heavy way to live. Do you know that? Pride is such a burden. And I've been reading about humility, and I'm getting this glimpse of, like, humility is so freeing. It's such a better way to live. It's such a lighter way. Grace is such a better way to live. And if you connect with any of that... I have great news for you today. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, just like you, just like me. I love the description here in verse 16 that Paul is an example that Jesus wanted to display his immense patience. Like Jesus is so, so patient. And he wanted us to see Paul. Paul is exhibit B, you know, of my patience. And I look at my life now, 43 years of living like this. What patience Jesus has with folks like us. And Jesus is inviting us into something. Man, I, I want something better for you than, than pride and self-righteousness. I want you to experience my grace. I want you to let go to that whole attempt to try to construct something that works. Just, just be yourself. Let me love you. Like, that's what I have. I, that's why I came. I came for sinners like Paul, 
Sinners like you, why don't you just let go of that pride? Receive my grace. Live in the freedom. That is what I want for you. I came to set you free. I want to go back to this analogy um, that Jesus uses. I don't know if I put it up here or not. Uh, yes. I want to go back to this analogy that, um, you know, when, in, Matthew, in Mark 2, this is Jesus' response to the religious leaders because he's hanging out with all these sinners. Uh, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I just want to invite you into that analogy this morning kind of as a way to, to send you off. Whether you relate to Matthew or whether you relate to Paul, I think this is the analogy that's so good for us. Jesus is saying, um, you know, I'm like a doctor. Uh, I'm a spiritual doctor. And like any doctor, I'm not expecting to meet you at your point of strength and health. <laughs> right? I'm a doctor. I'm expecting to meet you at your point of sickness and brokenness and need. And I was just thinking, like, I have a doctor. You know, I've got my MD. I have a relationship with my doctor. And, and my doctor and my relationship meets at the point of my sickness and need. And I was thinking, it'd be such a strange thing for me to, you know, have like a flu or a bad cold or something where I need antibiotics to go to my doctor and my doctor see me and snot is running down my face. My eyes are red. I'm coughing this hacking cough. And the doctor says to me, so um, Dave, what brings you in here? And I say, well, I've been running five days a week um, and I've been getting better at that. I'm feeling stronger and, you know, my cardio's up. And he's like, okay, so, you know, what, what brings you in here today? Um, I've been doing Whole30 diet for 60 days now. I feel I got better, you know, better focus. I have better energy. That's great. Um, so what brings you in here today, right? I've been doing yoga, meditation. I'm more relaxed than I've ever been. Um, great. So what brings you in here today, right? Like that, what, a, what, a, what a strange relationship that would be with my doctor, and yet, I think, isn't that sometimes kind of what we do with Jesus? <laughs> like, we, we have these broken places, and then we have these strengths, and we try to downplay the broken places, and we try to highlight the strengths. And Jesus is like, I'm a doctor. Like, what are you, what are you doing? I, I already know what's going on in your life. And this is why I've come. It's a good thing for me to be a doctor. I'm a great doctor. So let me meet you at your place of brokenness. Let me meet you at your place of sickness and need. And so I, I, I want to leave you with that idea of just, you know, this Christmas, I know things are busy and crazy, but what would it look like for you this Christmas to let Jesus be your spiritual doctor, if I can put it that way? To let your wounds, your needs, your places of brokenness be the doorway into deeper relationship with him. And to let down the guard of the respectable, religious, righteous person. And to come as a sinner. What would it mean just to, to be with Jesus as a sinner this Christmas? I know that kind of sounds weird. Because we're also him, with him as his saints. I mean, that's the, that's the good news. But there's something refreshing about, you know what? Own it. Own it. We're sinners. Own it. And that's why Jesus came. And acknowledging that doesn't downplay Jesus. That actually highlights Jesus. I mean, one of the ways we honor him is by coming and by inviting him into those places. It doesn't honor a doctor by trying to 
fix yourself and, and trying to deny the, the sickness. No, it honors the doctor when you come to him or her and you say, this is what I need. And they say, I can help you. And they help you. And you experience healing. That is what's so honoring. And that's how we honor Jesus. We come to him in those places. And then he meets us. And he brings forgiveness and grace and healing and transformation. He reveals himself as the great spiritual doctor that he is. And so we honor him when we do that. And really, that's what Paul is doing. I'll leave you with this thought. Paul is honoring Jesus in this passage. Paul's, this passage is not about Paul. Mark 2 is not about Matthew. Both passages are about Jesus, who he is, Yahweh to the rescue, come to save, to heal, and to forgive. And what just overflows in this passage is Paul's gratitude and putting the focus on Jesus. Verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's so grateful. Verse 14, God's, the Lord's grace was poured out on me along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, I was shown mercy by Christ Jesus. Verse 16, I was shown immense patience by him. And then it ends with this note of praise. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It is about him. Yahweh saves. And so as we let him into those places and and walk with him in those places, then all the honor is given to him and all the praise is given to him. And that is what we want this Christmas, right? We want the focus to be on him, not on us. So we get to be sinners. He gets to be the savior. It's a really good deal for everybody, all right? So let's pray And then we get to sing songs to our Savior. Lord, this morning as we come up on Christmas week, we just give you thanks that you came to save. Because we need saving desperately. And so it is good that you came to save us. I pray that you administer to us this season through your Holy Spirit as we encounter moments of anxiety, moments of sadness and grief, moments of pride, moments of trying to, trying to put a face on, in all of those moments, would you just bring about this uh, refreshing sense of your grace, your forgiveness, your goodness, and your presence with us right in the smack dab middle of whatever we're going through that we might experience your grace that is sufficient for whatever it is we face this week and beyond, Lord, so that you receive glory for who you are and what you've come to do. We praise you, Jesus, Yahweh to the rescue. Amen.